I'm doing any kind of like isometric work or any kind of movement-based work. I typically have a lot of intention through my eyes in a target. And I'm typically putting an awful lot of um, importance on how the hands are distributing load through the limb and how the feet are distributing load through the lower body as well. Because um, it's just how we interact with the world as humans. And then the, the midline of the body should be subconscious in its control. I shouldn't have to think about bracing my core when I reach outside of my, my base of support. That should be subconscious. And my intention, my conscious intention should be through my limbs, my hands, my feet, and my eyes to allow that. Doing all of that stuff at the same time, like you see with O'Brien, like catching balls with flashing glasses on a BOSU ball, it's just not specific at all to any sensory system, right? One of the things that we try to do, especially with ICANN, like Ryan was just talking about, be specific with your assessments. Know what part of the vestibular system is going to activate the posterior chain and attack that with your neural priming drills. That was Dr. Ryan Foley and Dr. Kyle Paxton. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. For episode 175, the, the theme is neurological training and performance. Ryan Foley and Kyle Paxton together run the business Integrated Kinetic Neurology, which is a resource for therapists, coaches, and trainers on neurological training systems. Dr. Foley and Dr. Paxton both have the common thread of being dissatisfied with the traditional rehab and performance routes and found much better results upon uh, going into a neurological model. So, neurology. I always loved learning about the role of the nervous system in training. As Kyle mentions early in the show, when you really think about it, everything is neurology. We read books like Super Training and and high-level resources like that, and the, one of the common threads is the nervous system is king. It is the controller of everything. What I really love about these two is they've taken the science of it and made it something that's not just not just a series of interventions, but also something that you can see show up in any athlete, watching any athlete perform. It's, for example, looking at their eyes and their hands and how that all connects, and their feet, and how that all connects into the skill trying to be performed. For the show today, Ryan and Kyle are going to get really into the primary sensory systems that contribute to human movement and performance and why they matter. And whether you're a coach, trainer, therapist, these are things that all are at the core of human performance. So within those three systems, we're talking proprioceptive system, visual system, and vestibular system. And on the show, Ryan and Kyle are going to get into practical, not only ways to observe this in action, but also training interventions and ideas and philosophies that anyone can use and just to get a new layer of understanding of what you're doing. Along the lines of Dan Fichter, I always love talking neurology and performance. It's absolutely an important direction that this field is going. So with that all being said, let's get on to the show with Dr. Ryan Foley and Dr. Kyle Paxton. Hey guys, thanks for uh, being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to get a show on neurology. I've had some great talks with people like Dan Fichter, and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. So could we start off by you guys sharing briefly uh, who you are and what led you into this path of neurology in your practice? Yeah, so uh, my name is Dr. Kyle Paxton. Uh, I I got my bachelor's in exercise science um, up at SUNY Brockport in, in New York and then went on and got my doctorate of physical therapy uh, from Nazareth College, all up in Rochester, which is why it's funny when we talk about Dan Fichter, a um, very close colleague of mine. I credit a lot of me getting into this world to him. Um, and and the reason I got into this neurology space is because when you really think about it, everything is neurology. The thing I talk about a lot is um, people like to talk about orthopedics, but you can't truly understand orthopedics without understanding neurology. And as I got into more practice and started working with more clients and athletes, that really started to become clear to me. So I took a deep dive into that world, and uh, we, we've kind of been pushing, pushing forward ever, ever since then, and we created Integrated Kinetic Neurology to try to take that complicated world that is neuroscience and make it really, really practical. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks for having us, Joel. Um, I'm in the same boat as Kyle. I graduated with Kyle, and after I graduated, I moved into into New York City. I was working with a lot of clients uh, down actually the Wall Street. I was working in a little physiotherapy practice down there, and I was using all the tools, all the treatment methods I learned in school. wasn't really getting anywhere, and that's what kind of triggered me to, to go down the path of looking at different systems because 
I think in school we we all learn how to assess the assess and treat the low tolerance of peripheral tissues, certain peripheral tissues like your muscles and joints. But I think we forget to to consider that the the brain relies on more than just muscles and joints to actually experience the world. Again, the brain's in that little black cave, and the only way it has access to the outside world is through the sensory systems. And so, we we took a shift um, to looking at the body from okay, can each system, can each sensory system actually experience load well? Can it tolerate load well in in a clinical environment, which is much different to the complex chaotic environment in the real world and especially when you get out into a sporting situation where you don't have time to to necessarily listen and interpret the feedback from your muscles and joints there has to be good predictive capacity there to be able to, to perform well um so my my background after school I, I went and i took a a course called proprioceptive deep tendon reflex it's kind of a mouthful <laughs> but um it was a course that looks at how the unique individual responds to different kinds of sensory input and we forget that each individual is is completely unique with a completely different unique past history past experiences past medical history injury history and we have to understand that all these things play a massive part in how they respond to our to our to our load essentially to our input through exercise interventions be it in a rehab setting or performance setting so that, that's what we really want to get across is that there's other systems there at play that influence how your muscles and joints interact with the world yeah ryan so you mentioned sensory systems uh and i know a big part of what you do uh, with the neurology uh, the neurology revolves around that and uh, the first question i wanted to ask you guys was what are the primary sensory systems that contribute to human movement and why do they matter Shoot, that question could probably be like an hour topic, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, but from a very basic perspective, just to kind of get us started, what a, can you talk a little bit about those sensory systems and their contribution to human movement? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, I mean, sensory feedback, both from an internal perspective and an external perspective, is what drives our ability to respond to the world around us. And we we want to step back and understand can each sensory system actually do its job well in transmitting information to the brain because again every every stimulus to our system has to be transduced into a nerve impulse so our brain can actually make sense of it and so the, the majority of the sensory input that goes to our nervous system is made up of the information that goes through our proprioceptive system our muscles joints tendons ligaments but also through our visual system and our vestibular system and so like I said before, we, we, we spend an awful lot of time looking at the, the low capacity of the muscles and joints, um, but an awful lot of the, the the manner in which our muscles and joints interact with the world is, is heavily dependent on how the, the visual system and the vestibular system is actually communicating with the proprioceptive system. And it, it's, it's something that we don't even think about until a problem arises in those systems. And so when we think about the vestibular system, for example, it's worth noting that from a, on a survival level, some of these systems matter more than others. And so when you think about the vestibular system, the, the main job of my vestibular system, which is located in my inner ear, its its job is to turn head movement or head acceleration into language that my brain can actually make sense of. Right, so my brain can get an idea of how orientated I am with, the, with gravity and also with the rest of my body as well. And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners out there have worked with athletes that have experienced concussion, uh, but also people who work with like clients in pain or, or any kind of other stress related or pain related condition that may have come across people with vestibular issues like vertigo or, or other dizziness and and you have to kind of ask yourself how well do you move or how how coordinated is your movement when you have a vestibular disruption when your vestibular system is affected your movement coordination goes goes to sleep again it's very very difficult to, to move and so it, it tells you how important the vestibular low capacity is in, in driving the proprioceptive system as well and, and there's there's many different reflexes that connect our vestibular system to our eyes and our vestibular system to our to our body and one of the fastest reflex pathways in the body is your vestibular spinal reflex so when my head moves there's typically going to be a reflexive connection between that head movement and my body through the vestibular spinal reflex, which connects the inner ear to a lot of the muscles around my midline, my trunk, but also through my extremities as well. So let, let's say, for example, when I'm when I'm jumping off a box, I, I can't just rely on the the feedback from the the length of my muscles, the position of my joints, but my brain needs to pick up that information about the the acceleration of my head. So if my brain perceives my head going straight up and then dropping down to the floor, it's going to say, "Hey, I'm moving down." 
at a fairly fast pace. So that one of the ways the vestibular system is going to help us adapt to that collision against the ground is to increase the amount of tone that we hold in our muscles. So it's kind of a feed forward type of mechanism to help prepare us for how we respond to the landing. Right, and particularly, it's going to connect with the the anti gravity muscles, the extensor muscles. So, it's the vestibular system allows us, it aids our proprioceptive system in adapting to movement and being able to be efficient with our movement. And, and, and the same thing with the, vis the visual system as well. In that, we we need to have good peripheral awareness when we're running and we're participating in high intensity movements because we need to know what's going on around us so we we can react to, to unexpected perturbations. Like if I'm a soccer player and I'm running up the field. If I haven't got good peripheral awareness and I don't see someone running at me to my left, if I catch them too late, I'm not going to be able to kind of set that tone in my body to be able to react and be more efficient with my, my moving coordination. But also in the same way, I need to be able to, to stabilize my eyes on targets when I move as well, because being able to stabilize my, my gaze on targets as I move reduces an awful lot of noise in the nervous system. But it also allows me to drive a lot of intention, maximum intention through movements. And that intention behind movement is so important because it allows our a structure in our brain called our cerebellum to be able to compare what's actually happening with our movement versus what I intended to do. So it allows that coordination to occur on much more of a, a, a an effective level to be able to adapt to unexpected perturbations. Right? And so it's really kind of a nice symphony of vestibular system functioning, understanding how it's loading visual system and the proprioceptive system and you can kind of break all those systems up into subcomponents as well and, and really ensure that every system is well able to tolerate load and then you can start to kind of add more noise and more variables to, to really take an athlete to the next level but also help people with any kind of pain related problems as well so hopefully that wasn't too too neurosciencey. <laughs> yeah no that was, that was a great summary shoot it probably clocked in at uh what probably could have been an hour plus presentation <laughs> of course please clocked in probably still under five minutes so that was awesome cool cool uh one of the things i wanted to follow up or kyle did you have any to add on to that before i added a question in there well no well i think uh We'll, we'll find out quickly here. Uh, I tend to be the summary guy when we're on podcasts together. But I think that the, the main thing that we want people to take away is understanding that speed, power, strength is not just all about the muscles, the tendons, and the joints, right? And when, when you can start to say, okay, I need to make this athlete faster on the field, maybe it's not just about adding more load on the bar and making them stronger so they can create a greater ground reaction force. Maybe it's if we improve that peripheral vision of the athlete, then they can react quicker and utilize that potential force that they have. We talk a lot about expression of force versus the potential force, right? And the sensory systems allow you to fully utilize the actual structure that you have. And that's where we start to bridge the, the, the neuro orthopedic performance side of things when you can look at it through that lens. And I think that's an important takeaway. Um, but like Ryan said, I think if you can start to understand that the proprioceptive system, the vestibular system, and the visual system are the primary drivers of how our body can respond to the outside world, it can really start to change the lens that you look at your programming through, that you look at how athletes move through, and it can open up a lot of new windows. One of the, one of the things I always think about every time this topic is brought up, and I've mentioned this to Dan in the past as well, is the idea, and, and everyone will always say this, in the world of, of jumping or jumping height, Pretty much everyone jumps the highest after they play a game of pickup basketball. And there's no warm-up that anyone can do that can recreate that. In the sense mm -hmm. of, I can, you know, I could quantify the work that gets done in that situation. But I'm not going to get up as high as I can. And I think about everything in that game from a sensory perspective. And as well as emotional. Ryan, you mentioned the emotions in motor output. Because the emotions yeah. of a game are different than the emotions of training by yourself. Or even just training and there, well, there's yeah. no competition. And so I always I enjoy thinking about that. One of the things that, I mean, even outside of competition, I liked, Ryan, that you mentioned the idea of the, the eyes and intention, like eye movements and intention. I've never heard that before, but it does make sense. And I know intention is talked a lot about in the world of neurology as well and how important that is. I, would you guys mind expanding briefly a little bit on, on that topic of, of eyes and intentionality? Yeah, yeah, I, I I love talking about the the neuroscience behind intention because it's it's such an important thing to understand in in reference to sporting performance and, and 
even chronic pain, but also in how different parts of our body are actually organized in terms of how they're controlled in, in real world environments. So when I think of like the midline versus the limbs, for example, there's a lot more purposeful control and intentional control required to control my limbs in the real world um, versus my midline, which is more kind of subcortical and reflexive in its movement control. That's like, like the can, core, right? The midline being like the core or the yeah, trunk. Yeah. Oh, okay, just making sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so like, you, you can't consciously or you can't intend to move or to fire your multifidi muscles between like L4, L5. You know, it's very, it's very difficult to, to have like conscious intentional pathways. You, you just don't have them in, in your body. And so when you think about intention or, or motiva- motivation to move, typically our intention to move is driven by a part of the brain by our, called our limbic system, which, which generates motivations, right? So typically when I, when I see something, again, I'm going to generate an intention to achieve some kind of future state with let's say if i'm picking up a pencil i'm I'm generating a future state or uh, that i want to achieve with that pencil in my hand let's say and so that limbic system communicates with the part of the brain called your your frontal cortex which houses your your motor cortex where we generate motor output through and so the frontal cortex gets that information and the frontal cortex really generates very unspecific motor output Okay, so like a lot of this functional neurology kind of these concepts come from people who have had pathological neurological issues. Like if you have a, a cortex stroke, um, like a pathological stroke, again, you'll typically lose movement somewhere, especially in the frontal cortex. Versus if you have a, an issue with your cerebellum, you'll typically still have movement, but you'll have very poor control of that movement. And so when the frontal cortex gets that information from the limbic system, it has to communicate with the cerebellum. So let's say if I'm moving, if I want to reach out with my right hand, my left frontal cortex will typically initiate that movement, and I'll talk to the the same side cerebellum, which kind of, it's it's obviously much more complex than this, but it kind of stores a lot of your movement experiences, right? And so the frontal cortex says, "Hey, cerebellum, what's what's the best way to carry out this task?" And the cerebellum says, "Hey, this is the best way to do it. Let's do it this way." And then the frontal cortex generates the actual motor output, but with the help of the cerebellum. And so I still have that intention now in my mind because I have that motivation behind the movement. And that allows my cerebellum to then compare what's actually happening to the intention behind that movement. And that's why the intention is, is so crucial. But when we think about how most of us generate intention through the real world, with real world movements, typically through our eyes, through our hands and through our, our feet. Right. So I intend to reach out for something with my hands. I tend to I interact with the world through my feet. I, I haven't seen anyone running down a field yet on their knees or their hips. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot about how you interact, how forces interact with your feet and how that force dissipates up through the chain. And same thing with the hands, how the hands kind of collect and, and accept force from the external environment and dissipate and, and kind of accept that load and transmit that load up through the, the chain. And the, the eyes allow us to kind of maintain that smooth coordination through our hands and through our feet. So whenever I'm, I'm doing any kind of like isometric work or any kind of movement-based work, I typically have a lot of intention through my eyes in a target. And I'm typically putting an awful lot of um, importance on how the hands are distributing load through the limb and how the feet are distributing load through the lower body as well. Because um, it's just how we interact with the world as humans. And then the, the midline of the body should be subconscious. Control. I shouldn't have to think about bracing my core when I reach outside of my, my base of support. That should be subconscious. And my intention, my conscious intention, should be through my limbs, my hands, my feet, and my eyes to allow that motion to occur. Because I, I think a lot of us have kind of been taught that or come across that example of like when you put your hands in the kind of the base of your neck, right beneath the occiput, and you kind of move your eyes left and right, you can kind of feel that change in tone. Right, so if you if you get the, the pads of your fingers right now and you gently place them right beneath the occiput, right in the suboccipitals, don't press too hard, but keep your head nice and still, and then move your eyes left and right, and you might see or feel a little flutter of tonal change, left and right. Interesting. Right. I'm doing you're, it right you're now. <laughs> you're feeling that, that change in tone in the suboccipital muscles because when you move your eyes, it, it it generates an intention to the brain that you're about to move in a certain direction. Okay, and so that's 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 the whole importance of, or puts in, it, it kind of adds to the importance of 
keeping your gaze nice and stable and controlled during bloom because it allows it, it allows for less noise, less chatter in my nervous system when I'm actually carrying out coordinated movements. Whereas if my eyes are constantly moving left, right, and center, my brain's constantly getting this feedback through a through a spinal or a, a neurological pathway called your tectospinal tract, which takes visual information and changes the tone of your body to get ready for movement. So I don't want a lot of like noise in my nervous system when I'm trying to, from a rehab standpoint, trying to move, or even when I'm an athlete trying to move in a certain direction in a sport or in a certain direction in the gym. I want my eyes to be stable, to, to reduce the amount of noise and chatter in my brain so I can, I can really focus on that directional output through my hands, through my feet, and of course, through the eyes. I really like that um, in terms of the hands, especially. I know uh, Adarian Barr has was the first person to point out to me that you can see what someone's feet are trying to do by watching their hands, and you'll see. And then all of a sudden, I'm watching these track meets, and I'll see different athletes, be it jumpers or sprinters, with different hand alignments. Like their fingers <laughs> are in these crazy. Some some of them have a Spock hand. <laughs> some yeah, are yeah. like crossing the. Um, yeah, like where you're crossing, let's see, I'm looking at my hand now, the second and third fingers together over each other and, or the pinky finger will be out because it's always trying to mirror what the foot's trying to do. So yeah. I had, I had kind of thought, I'd thought about that in my head before, but I've never thought about the role of the, the eyes in the intentionality. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a really cool trifecta. And I know also the, the core, yeah, being reflexive, like you can't, yeah, you can't think about what your trunk or your core midline is doing and do anything athletically effectively for the most part. It just, you'll be, you'll really be in trouble slow. if you're, if you're, if you're worried about your, what your midline is doing when you're reaching out or you're with your hands, you're reaching with your feet to try and accept stress from, from gravitational forces and even unexpected forces, you know? Yeah, that's why that the brace the core during any movement like cue is always kind of a it's an always an yeah. interesting one to me. I've never found that to be an effective strategy. <laughs> I guess unless you're getting punched in the stomach, but maybe that would be a different <laughs> neurological signal. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of adds to like people talk about a lot about like, especially in rehab, people talk um, a lot about proximal stability before distal mobility, but it shouldn't be conscious proximal stability. It should be subconscious proximal control like you shouldn't be aware of that your vestibular system your visual system should be communicating that change in tone through your midline so that just operates on its own so that we can have the resources then to move intentionally through our hands to interact with the world and through our feet to interact with the world so it's just about being able to understand that and then stepping back and changing your assessment and changing your interventions from both a rehab standpoint and from a performance standpoint to try and meet that because then you're really mimicking real world movement because you're doing like when you're at the sporting environment or even if you're just walking through a busy part of the city like you're you're doing an awful lot with your eyes you're moving your head an awful lot and the body should just follow suit the body should be able to coordinate itself underneath all that load and that noise that's going on from the neck up and so we really have to to mimic that kind of those kind of strategies within a, a rehab setting and a performance setting um if we really want to prepare athletes for the the chaos that occurs in in real worlds and sporting environments i wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor simplyfaster.com now has available in their store you hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymWare and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the GymWare go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10", squatter versus a 511 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym aware so just like the gym where the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics 
So for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, Ryan, you mentioned uh, using the hands, feet, and eyes in isometric training. And this is something I've talked with Dan briefly about before. But could you expand on that? Because I know um, the listeners, the audience, uh, we've done a lot of shows on isometrics on this mm-hmm. podcast particularly. I just did a, one that released uh, yesterday with Mark, Dr. Mark Wetzel on the same thing. And so I know everyone, a lot of people are using them, be it for tendon health or the neurological benefits of the movement. Yeah. Um, but so what, what are some examples of some ways that you would potentially enhance an isometric using the hands, feet, or eyes, or were your instructions in, in that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, definitely want to get as practical as we can today to give your listeners a lot of, a lot of clinical uh, kind of scenarios that they can, they can use. Um, so when it comes to isometrics, I think in very simplistic terms, isometrics really allow you to experience load in a safe and controlled manner while still being able to produce a lot of motor output. So it's, it's a really nice way to start by reducing the noise to the nervous system, uh, but by enabling it to experience load. And I think when you really step back and think about isometrics, what's, what's most important to me about isometrics is where you're delivering that isometric load. Not about the actual time or the tempo early on, but where you're delivering it. So because a lot of us, when we jump off a treatment table or if we're in a clinical environment or a performance environment, we we typically all stand up on two feet and walk. And so anytime an athlete or a client comes to see me in 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 my clinic, I really want to get an idea of how their nervous system is accepting load through their feet, no matter what they have, if they have a neck issue, headaches, anything. And so what I typically do is I, I, I kind of break out a few assessments to, to challenge each sensory system. And one of the things that I do is it's kind of hard to describe now without actually doing it. So I'll, I'll get the, the individual in kind of like a, a gait-specific stance. Let's say I have them kind of in a stride stance with the right leg in front and the left leg behind. And I've got maybe like 70% through the, the right leg, 30% force through the left leg with a little bit of a bend in the knee to try and get some co-contraction qualities in that in that right limb and what i'll have them do then is i'll have them close their eyes because when i have them close their eyes i'm essentially seeing how does their nervous system trust the information coming from the peripheral tissues in that position right obviously you're getting some vestibular load as well there but i'm I'm really trying to see does their brain actually trust the information coming only from the proprioceptive system and if they do okay with that with that then that's good and then I'll have them maintain that position. But then I'll have them rotate their rib cage to the left, let's say. And so if my right leg's in front and I'm rotating my rib cage to the left, I'm actually, I'm loading, I'm lengthening certain peripheral tissues in that limb. So that's changing my physiology. Whenever I change position, that changes physiology, that changes how the nervous system is going to respond to information. So I'm loading up more medial tissues there. And then I'll get them into that position. And then I'll have them close their eyes then to see does their nervous system actually trust the information while those peripheral tissues are being lengthened and loaded? Because that could change everything. Then they might experience a lot more sway, a lot more movement. So it gives me information about how the nervous system trusts that information. Then I'll have them rotate the other way into that end range and have them close the eyes. So I'm loading more of the posterior lateral tissues throughout the whole lower limb and close the eyes. And and almost all the time, I'll, I'll notice a difference there. I'll notice the difference between when the medial tissues are loaded versus the lateral tissues are loaded. And all that does for me is it helps guide where I want to deliver my load, my isometric load first. So if I find that when they rotate to the left, when they're loading more medial tissues and, and, and they experience a lot more sway, a lot more instability in their movement, I know that there's not a lot of trust there between that, that receptor feedback to the brain. And so I know exactly where I want to deliver my asymmetric load, maybe in my manual therapy to try and help redistribute the load through the whole limb. Okay. Cause that's going to affect everything that transmits up through the midline, up through the neck and everything. So even if I'm doing a, uh, even any kind of like neck isometrics or upper limb isometrics, I'm having them engage that specific position where their nervous system 
potentially was perceiving some kind of threat through those tissues to help enable it to safely experience loathing. Right? And, and even if it's if it's with someone that has some kind of lower limb issues, then I know exactly where I'm doing my isometric loads first. Instead of just doing very, very generalized isometric loading, I know exactly where I'm doing it, where, they, where that athlete needs load first before I start to just annihilate them with stimulus. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, I think so. So is the closing... Can you remind me again what the closing of the eyes does? Are you having them close their eyes at a specific point? Or are they having their eyes closed for the whole thing to be able to zero in on? No. Or, or how does... Can no. you explain that again? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for in specific positions there. Because it's challenging to do. Um, especially if you're moving with your eyes closed and you're rotating with your eyes closed. I just want to see how do they trust certain positions. So in each position that I engage my nervous system has to, ask, has to ask itself, do I actually trust the information coming into my system in this position? So when I'm standing in a stride stance and my eyes are open, I rotate my rib cage to the left, I'm loading up certain peripheral tissues in my lower extremity, and then I close my eyes, and then I'm checking to see does what happens there. Because in that moment, I'm not getting a lot of visual feedback. So then the, the reliance or the dependence shifts so now the brain has to focus only on the proprioceptive information and the vestibular system information too. So I can get an idea of like what tissues does my brain, what peripheral tissues does my brain actually not trust being loaded? Because then I know that from an athletic standpoint, I want to get the nervous system to trust information from every peripheral tissue. Because yeah. that's going to help me redistribute the load throughout the, the entire over greater surface area, which is obviously going to have massive carryover into how long I can sustain performance and how much load output or motor output I can actually produce as an athlete. Um, and I'll just use that from, a, from an assessment standpoint. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I know exactly where to perform my manual therapy uh, to just try and kickstart that load, that load delivery and then where I'm going to perform my isometrics. And then when I have that isometric load, I start to layer other things on top. That's when I start to layer visual work that's when i start to layer vestibular work because i'm now i'm getting very specific with where that nervous system that, that unique nervous system needs load um without just trying to just throw isometrics at an individual without really understanding what they need and that that's that all comes back to really making your assessment and your interventions as as unique as possible um because everyone has, has different past experiences everyone has different past injury histories so you have to respect that when you're working with uh, with, with clients as well um yeah and it's the same you can do the same thing with the the upper extremities as well i think adding like if, if we want to talk about how you can add more kind of neural engagement to just the basic isometric i i do an awful lot of um like dual tasking with isometrics um because typically as athletes and as individuals that move through the world we we don't just consciously bring our awareness into uh kind of a a peripheral tissue in the body when we're moving, but we have, that peripheral tissue should be able to do its job while I'm doing something else. And so I'll do an awful lot of like exhalation-based breathing. I'll do an awful lot of like spinal uh, mobility work with breathing. I'll do an awful lot of visual work, vestibular work, um, just to, to add a bit more kind of cortical activity, a bit more cognitive load almost. And there's a good bit of research on how we can improve um, our response to painful stimuli and our ability to respond to unexpected perturbations when we train with a dual tasking manner as well, because we're, it's almost like we're trying to make that isometric load a bit more automatic while I'm doing something else with the nervous system. So there's a bit more of a, a carryover into my kind of automatic kind of storage within the nervous system. So I can call upon load, a safe load in that peripheral tissue in the real world without having to consciously think about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It reminds me of uh, I've seen Cal Dietz do a, a videos on something he called neural perplexity that remind me of that exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Or it was there was something where I think it was a study where some people were doing like a bike ergometer training system, and one group just did the program, and the other group did it the the same program, but they had to solve math problems while they were riding the bike. And then at the end of yeah. the the series, they they saw who could have the, the, the most improvement in just riding the bike, just, just the training program. And it was the program that had the, the group that had the other things going on because they, um, 
they they had their their RPE was like their rate of perceived exertion was higher when they were actually training with the math problems than when they didn't have them. I don't know if that's the same thing. Maybe I'm just kind of going off into something else. But I, I did have a couple of follow up questions. But before I ask them, uh, Kyle, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I, I think the the biggest gap that I see is exactly what Ryan said. Isometrics tend to be trained in such a conscious way, just focusing on the peripheral tissue. And that's just not how we move through the world. And if we're really trying to get the optimal carryover to performance specifically, there's not going to be any time where you're on the field that all those sensory systems aren't going to be having to work together. And then on top of that, you're, you have to problem solve on the field as well, right? Like you're reacting to visual stimuli and having to actually have, have a cognitive load with it. So that's why dual tasking is great from one, just adding sensory stimulus as a whole, but the concept of dual task and having it be a little bit more coordinative or having extra layers to it outside of just, okay, let's have a gaze stability with just be staring at a point while you do this, right? Yes, that's adding visual load, but I think when you can think about it through more of that dual task lens and trying to engage multiple sensory systems and trying to increase the cognitive load as a whole, it can really start to improve your carryover elsewhere. Um, I, I, I've just seen so much isometrics being, let's hold it there, let's hold it for a minute, and let's focus on contracting this muscle as much as we can. And let me tell you, that's better than a lot of other situations, but there's always ways to improve the carryover and improve the motor output that you're getting. If we just talked and said that the sensory systems are what really drive our motor output, why are we not engaging them when we're trying to get as much motor output as possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the things I like as you guys are talking about this, uh, the, something that pops into my head is LeBron standing on balance balls, having like two baskets, throwing a couple ba- basketballs <laughs> or something. That's and it's a lot of people would look at that and be like, "Well, that's dumb. It's not specific." It's I and I always just look at it if the athlete is extremely good and they like something. There's probably a reason they like it. And, you know, specific or not, balance, whatever you want to say about the whole thing, there's there's a lot of uh, dual tasking and, I guess, neural perplexity there that's probably very good for his nervous system. I mean, what do you... Um, what do you guys think about that or, and, or can you guys give me some more examples of dual tasking in your practice? So in the midst of an isometric or something that's, um, like practical that, uh, we could kind of put in our pockets. Yeah. Well, I think speak, speaking to the LeBron thing first, uh, that's something that comes up all the time, especially when I'm training these high level football guys. They're always wanting to do that type of stuff now, right? Because they see things on Instagram that, oh, uh, Antonio Brown has these flashing glasses on, right? He's standing on a single leg on a BOSU ball, and then he's catching 19 balls at once, right? Um, I think the problem is not what you're doing with that, more so how you're using it in the programming, right? If you use that appropriately and then take all the stimulus and improvement you can get in the nervous system from that, and immediately go do some sort of high motor output activity, whether it's heavy squats or a power or uh, explosive type exercise, then I think that's where you can get the benefit out of it. I think a lot of that stuff gets lost in context in social media, and that's the biggest issue. So uh, I think Ryan will agree. I don't have a problem with that. I just think it's misused sometimes in the programming. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, in terms of like more practical applications, it's again i keep coming back to it it's it's really about understanding where the load is needed so i think for a lot of like trainers i I do a lot a lot of um like cerebellar testing in my clinic because the cerebellum is that part of the brain that has to integrate all the mechanoreceptor feedback from the body uh, at any given time and so the cerebellum is concerned with like coordination with timing with with rhythm um and so when I'm testing someone's muscles, I want to get an idea of how that cerebellum is responding to that to allow for good coordination, to allow for good timing and rhythm. So I'm not, when, I, when I'm testing someone, I'm not looking for the black and white. I'm not looking for strong versus weak because that really offers me nothing about the, the individual's ability to respond to, to opposing force. Um, I want to give the nervous system time. The response so when i when i do like a let's say a muscle test i'm not testing one muscle i'm testing directions and i'm testing through multiple joints so i'll typically test through the, the foot an awful lot 
to see how well the force is being transmitted through the whole limb, and I look at different directions. And so if, you, if, you're, if you're a coach and you can't do any kind of hands-on testing, I like to manipulate the bunky test. You ever hear of the bunky test? Um, I don't think so. No, the, the bunky test is, is a test for uh, low capacity of, of certain lines, like force transmission lines through the, the lower limb especially and up into the midline. So you could have someone on their back and you could have a step um, in front of the, the, the kind of lower extremity would be slightly extended with a little bit of a bend in the knee and they're driving through the heel to try and lift the pelvis in the back off the floor and try and hold it there for as long as they can, essentially. So you're, you're getting an insight into how well that posterior chain is loading or accepting load through the, the extremity. And again, you can you have certain ranges for what's good and what's not good. Um, but if you read, like a lot of that stuff is done through the heel, but you don't push off your heel as an athlete yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. tell yourself for, forward. And so I do an awful lot of testing through the, the foot, Right, typically through around the, the midfoot, forefoot, to see how well force is being trans- is being transmitted through the foot, up through the knee, up through the hamstring, into the hip, um, and to to get an idea of how different directions um, play a role in in movement. So I'll see if there's any difference in how I can respond to load through the anterior chain, the lateral, medial, posterior. And so typically, what I find in clinic is that a lot of the time the posterior kinetic chain from the foot through the plantar fascia, up through the calf, up through the hamstring into the glute, isn't able to coordinate movement well. I'm not saying it's not strong, but I'm saying it, it, it doesn't have a, it can't really respond to like incremental load, where like when you start very gently through the foot and you slowly build, they'll, they'll push down on the brakes and, or on the accelerator and like drive their foot down to the table. And because I think a lot of athletes kind of get the idea that strong is good and weak is bad, but that's not the case. I think a much better reflection of the state of an individual's neurology is how well they can relax versus how quickly they can kind of turn on muscles, you can say. And so I'll, I'll actually build up the tension through the foot while having the athlete press down to the table with a little bit of a knee bend to try and get that co-contraction uh, capability into the leg as well. Um, and, and hold it there for like seven seconds and build up to seven seconds. And I'll typically see an incredible amount of shaking in the leg, which which gives me an insight that the nervous system is, is almost freaking out with that incremental load. And so I know that I then have to kind of start building better load tolerance through that part of the kinetic chain there. So I, I do this thing in clinic, which I don't know if, if it's massively used a lot. I do like, a, like a, what I call like walking perturbations, you can say, with the hands. So if I, if I find an athlete that has poor um, kind of cerebellar output, through the posterior kinetic chain in terms of it doesn't have good timing, good coordination, good rhythm. Um, I'll get them into like a half kneeling posterior chain isometric. So I'll get them half kneeling. I'll, I'm just going to simulate this so I can better explain it. So let's say I'm going to work through the, the right posterior chain. And I'm kind of putting force through my left knee. I'll put a little step in front, like a six, six inch, 10 inch step in front. And I have my forefoot putting force down through that step with a little bit of a knee bend to try and get that co-activation capability through my, my, my foot, my calf, and my hamstring. And then I always think of like the Franz Bosch kind of approach here where you want to have that kind of universal tractor. I want to build that load tolerance through that posterior kinetic chain, but I also want to leave a bit of room on the outside for self-organization, the fluctuation right in that movement. Because I know that I'm not going to just be propelling force through the posterior kinetic chain in a real-world movement so what i'll have an athlete do is i'll have them kind of drive their forefoot down to the step and get the hamstrings get the calves working together and then i'll have them close the eyes and i'll have them walk their hands down the medial part of their their lower extremity to add perturbations right so i'm pressing on the medial part of the leg and i'm walking down all the way down to the forefoot so, so again, we, we all know how much of a cortical map the, the hands have in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So I'm really building better kind of cortical awareness of that, but I'm also kind of allowing for an internal perturbation to my own external force that I'm putting through the, the limb. And by closing my eyes, it means that I don't necessarily know when that hand is coming in contact with my leg, if that makes sense. If my eyes are open, I, I can expect that. So I'll just maintain the posterior direction of force and then by walking my hands down the medial part of my limb, putting pressure through it, I'm asking the medial 
peripheral tissues to respond to that external load. And then I'll walk my hands down the lateral part of that limb, down to my forefoot. So I'm getting nice length through the posterior chain under load through an isometric. With my eyes closed, I'm really forcing all the awareness on my proprioceptive system. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of the hands too, I I posted a. I just kind of discovered this randomly the other day. I was doing a Nordic hamstring exercise, and I mm-hmm. I didn't even realize I was doing this till I was halfway through the exercise of the set. But I had naturally just put my hands on my um my proximal hamstring attachments as I was yeah. going down, and I could go further, way further. <laughs> um, and yeah. So, I how, saw that. Yeah. Yeah. How does that? So how does that mechanism? Like, what's the What's the neurology behind something like that? It's definitely it's, it's, it's quite complex. It's definitely not as simple as I'll I'll make it seem now. Yeah, but it's an hour show. <laughs> when, you, yeah, <laughs> when you think of the the real estate attributed to the hands within the, your sensory cortex, the um, the amount of representation granted to the hands is very very large compared to any other part of your anatomy, and so your nervous system is is going to pay attention to what your hands place themselves on what part of your body you place your hands on so it's almost like you're going to be bringing your your conscious awareness to your hamstring so there's a difference between subconscious awareness and conscious awareness and so the 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 cerebellum the part of your brain that lives behind the brainstem is always aware of every single part of your body at every single time otherwise you wouldn't be able to stand and do things without being aware of your ankles where your ankles are you're not consciously aware but you have to have awareness there and that's due to the mechanoreceptor feedback. But once you bring your hands in contact to something, or once you bring your, your, your thought into an area, you're bringing, you're layering conscious awareness on top of that subconscious awareness. So there's going to be a larger amount of sensory feedback from that body part. And if the brain has more sensory feedback from a body part, then as a result, it's going to feel a bit more safe, granting you a bit more motor output bit more tone and tension to achieve the tasks that you're trying to achieve if that makes sense you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah for sure i and i've noticed especially with a lot of elite athletes that i work with is if we're doing anything unilateral if they have a free hand a lot of times they'll utilize that free hand to improve sensory feedback and like a core region like like somewhere in the abdominals or ribs or or something that they're trying to get a higher output, usually on medicine ball drills. But mm-hmm. I never realized that at first, and then I realized that that was something they were kind of doing automatically to improve feedback through. And like you guys said, the the trunk is uh, reflexive, and it's not as intentional, so it seems as if the hand you would need the help from the hands on the yep. midline or, pro, or the, the central structures of mm-hmm. the body to help the reflexive action happen better. Yeah, it's, it's almost like... Um, you, you spoke about like athletes do these kind of weird things with the hands when they run, right? Again, it's basically kind of layering more sensory feedback on top of what you're doing already to get the brain's attention, right? So again, if you can if you can um, stimulate or engage more parts of the nervous system, more parts of the your your anatomy, you're you're going to get the the nervous system's attention a lot more. But you're also going to improve its ability to direct motor output because if it's if it's more consciously aware of the body, it's going to feel safer because it's going to have more information about where your body is in space, and that's that's the ultimate goal of your of your brain is to know where you are in space because it hides in a little black cave and the only way it has access to the outside world is through your sensory systems. So again, sometimes the eyes aren't enough if they're moving around. So again, the, the athlete's going to start to engage the hands to kind of deliver a bit more kind of awareness or sensory feedback to give the brain that understanding of hey where are you relative to the rest of the body relative to the gravity and that safety uh, is going to kind of lower the the, the sympathetically driven uh, behavior of the the athlete and perhaps improve the ability to direct motor output to the right tissues where your where your intentional focus is yeah i think it's something that is way more common then people think they're just not looking for it. And it's a way that I use as an assessment. If you truly watch athletes, like you, you just said with, with your, your uh, athletes during their med ball drills, they're not even knowing that they're putting their hands in certain areas many times. It's a way that I look for where is the body looking for more information, right? It's a way that I can start to look at an athlete and say, 
this person keeps putting his hands here to accomplish his motor task, I probably need to drive more information there through whatever I'm doing, whether it's through sensory systems or through some of my load proprioceptive type stuff. But it can really help start to be more specific to the individual in front of you when you can start to notice some of that. Or if an athlete says, hey, I, I feel a lot better when I have my hands here, that can really give you an indication of where they need more stimulus. Because like Ryan said, the brain's always looking for more information. The more information it has, the safer it's going to feel, the better the motor output's going to be. But use that to drive your training based on what you see. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. The more you hear it, the more it makes sense. Like if the brain doesn't have sensory information about what it's going to do, it's not going to wire power to the movement because <laughs> it's going to get hurt or the body's going to get hurt. Uh, what? So for example, for me with my, you know, if I'm needing more sensory information on my hamstrings doing a Nordic hamstring type exercise, and it's tough because my hands, well, I have long arms. And so I have the advantage that I, I bet you there's a lot of athletes who with shorter arms than me who would have a hard time even reaching their hamstrings. But say you yeah. had someone in that situation, what, I, how are you going to advance that? So you're using, you have the information, I need more sensory information there. What, what are you guys doing with that outside of just me having my hands there? Is there other techniques or ideas that will improve the strength of that movement? That's, that's a good question because I definitely wanted to get to that before we finished up. Um, so the hands, the hands is one way to deliver that information. But if we if we come back to the vestibular system for a moment, um, the the position of your head is 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 a very important um, piece of information to your to your nervous system. And so whenever I turn my head in a certain direction or move my head in a certain direction, my brain is going to pick up that information. And through those reflexive pathways, there's going to be changes in tone throughout my body. Okay, so the the proprioceptive system is, especially in upright stance and upright movement, is is kind of typically set up to oppose the movements of my head. So, let's say if I'm like you can think about it with just general walking. A lot of our neurosensory experience through the world is driven by forward motion. Okay, so we typically fall forward, we catch ourselves with our foot. We fall forward, we catch ourselves with our foot, and so in that moment, my head is traveling forward so my vestibular system is telling my brain hey we're falling forward so where do you think you're going to have to increase the tone and the the awareness through you're going to put it into your extensor muscles into your glutes into your into your kind of back extensors and say right but even lower down into the kind of down to the posterior chain as well and sometimes into the anti-gravity muscles it's, it's very complex you can't predict where it's going to go um but even if let's say if i was to fall forward and to the right again think about what muscles throughout the body have to oppose that force you're thinking maybe if i'm falling forward to the right the posterior lateral muscles on the left side of my body might have to increase in tone to prevent me from going that direction okay so if i if i want to get some more tone or more awareness into a body part i i can typically kind of use the vestibular system to drive more tone into the body part that I want to get more to get more awareness of. So I'll, I'll typically, well, you can kind of do it in many different ways. It depends on what you want to do, but sometimes you just have to step back and see how the vestibular system is functioning as a whole. So I'll do an awful lot of like vestibular ocular uh, drills, which involve um, coordinated movements of the, the eyes, the head, and you can link it to the rest of the body, depending on what kind of vestibular drill you do. So, what I will do an awful lot of the time when I'm trying to get more kind of posterior chain um, activation, you can say, uh, I will get the athlete set up into a kind of a stride stance, just like I mentioned before. And I'll have them hold a target directly out in front of them at arm's length and keep their eyes stabilized on that target. And what I'll do is I'll do what's called like a vestibular ocular reflex cancellation drill, which just adds a bit more kind of challenge to a head and eye movement because the i'm sure a lot of your listeners know about the vestibular ocular reflex which allows me to maintain my gaze stability on targets as my head moves which is quite an important thing for an athlete because you don't want your eyes moving around with your head in a, in a game situation so i'll have them in that stride stance i'll have them keep their eyes fixated on that target and i'll have them link their arm which is holding the target the eyes and the head in a downward motion towards my towards my pelvis, let's say, right? So I won't have any movement of my spine, yet I'll have just movement of the head down the way. Because in that moment, my 
like the anterior canals and, and different parts of my vestibular system are picking up that movement of the head and saying, hey, we're falling forward, so you probably want to increase some tone into the extensor muscles right now. And then I can add more speed to that, but I can also add more body coordination to that. So then I'll, I'll actually integrate a reach with my shoulder to try and offload the extensors of different parts of my shoulder, which I won't get into right now, but it's definitely something that is good clinically for, for pain, especially and gaining rib cage movement as well. I'll have them integrate the head, the eyes, the arm, and the spine. Then I'll have them moving down towards the knee with their target. Okay, to add a bit more coordination. And then I'll have them reach even more and reach down towards the feet. Whilst always integrating the eyes to maintain stability on the target, head position is integrated too. Because anytime I have to move my eyes and my head, the vestibular system essentially makes sure that your eyes can maintain stability on that target. Because if your vestibular system isn't communicating the head movement to your brain well, then the eyes aren't going to be really be able to stabilize well. And that's that's through that vestibular ocular reflex. But basically, uh, the, the head position can help to reflexively increase tone in certain parts of the body. So using the vestibular system as, a, as sort of like a neural primer before you do any kind of um, isometric drill in a certain area or, or trying to achieve more motor output into a certain area without doing isometrics or without using your hands can be really, really effective because we know how influential the vestibular system is over the whole body because when you get those vestibular issues, you're definitely going to feel it in the whole body. And when we talk from a clinical standpoint of vestibular issues, we're, we're not talking about you're going to see things with the naked eye here. You have to tease out these subclinical asymmetries. So we might have to be able to, we have to cut off visual information if we want to know if there's a vestibular issue because then we can isolate the vestibular system and how it controls movement. And so if there's a lot of swaying or a deviation in movement with certain tests, we can step back and say, hey, this, this athlete needs some vestibular integration. And that, that, we talk an awful lot about that on our courses, our performance courses and our, our, um, our approach courses as well, how to assess and understand where this athlete needs load and where they need to engage more. But you can use it from a clinical perspective to help someone in pain, but also to drive more tone into an area as an athlete if you want to increase motor output through an area as well by understanding how the, the head movement integrates with the rest of the body if that makes sense yeah on a basic level i think it's similar to what mark uh, dr mark wetzel said last podcast the idea of just having your thumb in front of your eyes and if you turn your head to the left and your eyes have to maintain contact on your thumb like that would be the really purely basic version of that and then so you're basically using uh just versions of that before the isometric Mm -hmm. to improve um the the sensory the sensory load into the body so they get a stronger output Exactly. So, I mean, when, when you're talking about that, that vestibular ocular reflex, that's a reflex that should happen. But when you talk about the vestibular ocular reflex cancellation, where I have to link my eyes with my head motion, motion now, that's going to be more of a cortical activation. Oh, so that's going, to, that's going to add a bit more kind of brain activation, you can say, um, to the actual movement. So you have to use more frontal cortex activation to override the reflex, that which, makes- is, which is a lot more kind of... Um, stimulatory to the nervous system that makes me think about so every i again i take everything back to pick up basketball because it's the best warm <laughs> and and i think about when you're playing versus you're lifting weights you're running you're doing drills your head's always your eyes always straight ahead your head's straight ahead mm-hmm. there's no there's neither of either you know you're not you're not doing the vesicular or the cancellation you're just yeah. lifting and so I always so think how, basketball, you're doing, you're always moving. How could you play basketball and not move your head or your eyes, right? Exactly, and and yeah. how, how much of a primer is that? And obviously, there's all the emotional things as well, but to every movement you're doing. And so I think, yeah, it's just another cool example to me of how it all works together. Absolutely. And when you can layer the vestibular system with isometrics, I see some, some very, very cool changes of that with clients with pain and with athletes with, with any kind of performance issue. And it's just as simple as, Stepping back, assessing where they need load. Does their vestibular system need actual need to be able to accept load better? What side do they need it through? What part of the vestibular system they need it through? And then you can construct more specific, um, you can say neural primers, or you can integrate it into your into your sessions as well. But you have a a really unique um, stimulation kind of approach for your for your athlete your unique athlete to do maybe in between sets during a, a session before a session, but also to integrate it into their rehab program. If they're, if they're suffering from any kind of like pain experience 
anywhere in the body or kind of little niggles here and there because we just want we want every peripheral tissue to be able to accept load well and we want the sensory systems to be able to accept load as well and we just want to marry that together because neurology talks a lot about the what goes on above the neck and physiotherapy performance-based stuff we talk about what goes on below the neck so let's marry the two together to try and build a really robust athlete that's very very hard to stress and perturb yeah, I love, I love it. Um, so just with a couple of minutes left, I did want to bring it back quickly. It's something, Kyle, that you mentioned, which was the like the LeBron James stuff, right? If you, but that not being you, uh, from what I understand, like that's not a standalone training method they should. And obviously, the stuff you see on Instagram, <laughs> there's a lot more to it, just blindly copying. That's really silly. But the idea of that being a primer, like, and so I think about. I even saw a guy, I've been trying to rack my brain for his name, actually, the last 30 minutes um, with with the mental space I have, because I'm really disappointed I can't remember his name, but he's a guy who can dunk just as well as age 35, 36, as he probably could at 22. This guy is amazing. He gets his head over the rim and all this stuff, and I see he'll post training videos, and you see this at a lot of elite, just who are good athletes. I mean, granted, this guy's a powerhouse physically as it stands, but... He's like doing, you know, cleans on a BOSU ball or whatever. It's like, okay, okay, whatever. Like, we know this is not, <laughs> we for what, what all the reasons are, but I'm like, you know what? This guy is challenging his nervous system. So he's probably getting something from a nervous system perspective out of this. And I've seen things where like, where I saw a video where Paul Check was doing a, um, a bottoms up kettlebell press a single arm bench press with his back on a physio ball. So a lot of balance and, and, and he's like, he had said, when you do this, you could actually make your bench press afterwards better because of more neural drive. And so I just wanted to ask you any more about the idea of using uh, some of these, I guess you could call them, uh, <laughs> any any drill that basically is frowned upon by action, by, by modern exercise science or doing a BOSU ball squat, anything like that. But the value of doing those types of things as a sensory piece before main work uh, as in training. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think one of the things I had said previously is that they're misused, one, in a programming side of things. But two, when you're doing all of that stuff at the same time, like you see with LeBron, like catching balls with flashing glasses on a BOSU ball, it's just not specific at all to any sensory system, right? One of the things that we try to do, especially with ICANN, like Ryan was just talking about, be specific with your assessments. Know what part of the vestibular system is going to activate the posterior chain and attack that with your neural priming drills, right? It's, it's going to be way less effective to just throw everything at you to mm-hmm. do this instability and just get the nervous system. As, that's a very general word, right? Yeah. Uh, working harder when we could say, okay, we know what these systems do. We know what parts of the body they control. So let's assess those, see where this athlete has difficulty give the body stimulus there, you're going to have much greater success actually changing the motor output and changing the motor output on a long-term basis, right? These other things, you can do all kinds of neural tricks, right? And open up windows of strength changes for 30 seconds. But we want to truly assess where the athlete can't absorb load, right? If, if you think of load in the sensory systems the same way you're thinking of it as on the bar, right? If an athlete is really bad at pulling movements, but they're really good at pushing, what are you going to do? You're going to load up slowly and progressively those pulling movements to make sure they're balanced and accepting load everywhere. Same thing for the sensory systems. If they're driving and doing really well with their eyes, but when you test their vestibular system, they're having issues, that's probably where their body's going to look to get more stimulus because it doesn't feel like it can accept load there. So when you can think of it through that lens, I think that's when you can start to get really powerful with doing some of these things before exercise to get the best motor output changes possible. And of course, you get more motor output, you're going to get more physiological changes. And that's what we're always trying to do, right? Use these neural things to actually change the physiology and mechanical structure of your muscles over time. Uh, But I think it's a matter of specificity more than anything else. Ryan, do you agree or you want to add something to that? Yeah. I I think it's all down to, like when you think of neuroplasticity, like 30 seconds in a BOSU ball with the barbell on your back, catching things isn't really going to be enough uh, like fr- I think frequency is more important than intensity when it comes to trying to drive neural change. And so if you can empower the individual to do things themselves, not just in a clinical environment, but in a in many different environments, that's going to be much more a powerful um, uh, change for the, for any any client, whether they're an athlete or not. 
you need to empower the individual. Simple things to do. Do it frequently. Do it with specificity. And and then that, that'll open up a lot more kind of uh, learning uh, channels for to self-organize towards something they want to achieve. You just have to make it a bit specific. That, that's what it's all about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. I think that's all the time I got for the show today. But so that was a lot of heavy, but awesome information. And I, I know I have my um, knowledge of the, the, I guess, right, the nervous system, quote unquote, like all the parts of it has definitely been elevated. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time with me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in for another show. Appreciate you guys being here with us listening across this diverse bandwidth of topics. And it's just so much fun to explore everything out there in the world of training and having um, more uh, more layers of the onion to go through and more lenses by which to see things that are going on in sport and athletics. If you enjoy the show, you can support us by giving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to the show on. As always, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Be sure to check them out, support their website and what they are doing. And we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.